What's up, everyone? This is Burton and Aaron from Lost in the Dark podcast. And raise your horns because you're listening to Wayne and Michelle from the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. Welcome to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. Coming to you from the glacial dumping grounds known as the Michigan Basin. I'm Michelle. And I am Wayne. And we are a Michigan-based husband and wife educator and podcasting duo that after having a UFO sighting in March of 2018, have started to examine UFOs and other paranormal topics within Michigan and beyond. Topics include UFOs, the paranormal, conspiracy theories, ghosts, alternative history and archaeology, cryptids, and all things strange and paranormal. So sit back, grab a drink, and come along with us on this journey down the paranormal rabbit hole. Hey everybody, happy Halloween. Hey, you ghouls and goblins. It is episode 18, that magical 18 number, just in time for Halloween. What are we calling this one, Michelle? Oh, this one is following in the steps of Bigfoot and other paranormal encounters with special guest Eric Altman. We're going to have a pretty lengthy conversation about this guy right here. So what you just heard is allegedly recorded sounds of the legendary Bigfoot. This is the reason I've never been a camper. Well, all you got to do is hear a coyote out in the wild and you don't want to be a camper. My camping involves electricity and running water. (laughs) Understandable. And that's why we are talking about Bigfoot and other cryptids such as Mothman a little bit about the Michigan Dogman, and even some ghost stories on Halloween. Yeah, there's nothing like stories about like cabinets opening and closing themselves and things like sliding along. It's like, okay, my, my interest is peaked. I've got to hear this story. Absolutely. There's going to be some uh, cool stuff that we're going to talk about. So why don't we go ahead and jump right into thanking everybody that has recently joined our Facebook group. Our group is growing like crazy, and at the time of this recording, we're only about 200 members away. Less than that, we're making a bet within the house, guys, about as far as... When we hit 5,000? Yeah, it's like, okay, is it going to be Saturday or is it going to be Sunday? Look, everybody, we just want to say thank you for sharing us out and passing on the podcast to fellow Michiganders and anybody else anywhere around the world that wants to listen to our show and has an interest in UFOs. 
So we're hoping to get a lot more great guests on and you guys can help by sharing us out, getting us more downloads and we get the attention of some major players out there that will come on our show and we can uh, talk to them for you. So once again, thank you everybody for growing the group, growing the podcast. And without you guys, Michelle and I would be talking to no one. Well, and remember, if you have a story you would like to tell, we would like to talk to you. You can reach out to us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. Send us a brief summary of your experience and we'll contact you to discuss things further and try to get you or your story on the podcast. So let's go ahead and get this Halloween special episode started. Let's talk some news. Yes. What is in the news? Well, we've got an article here. Video captures pulsating UFO dropping out of the sky. Yes, this just recently came out on October 27th, 2021. This is an interesting article, and the video that is embedded in this article is really quite compelling. Uh, creepy. That too. So, newly released footage of a glowing orb over Mexico has has been called very consistent with decades of previous reports of unidentified aerial phenomena from pilots. So the video obtained by the Daily Mail shows a pulsating teardrop-shaped object zip around a pair of FedEx pilots. <laughs> Poor pilots. Well, they were pretty excited when you watched the video. Oh, uh, but still, poor pilots. Yeah. <laughs> Who spotted the UFO March 19th of 2020 out their windshield while they were flying near Monterey, though the interloper never popped up on the plane's radar. At one point, the brilliant yellow white plasma like object appears to rapidly descend from the sky to match the altitude of the two cargo planes. Then, flash a beam of light in their direction the orb proceeds to zoom alongside the aircrafts for more than a half hour before disappearing with a flash of pinkish purple light okay that's crazy i've never flown a plane but i can't even imagine seeing that firsthand well one of the things that you're going to hear if you watch the video is the pilots talking about it's not showing up on the radar. It's not showing up on the radar or what they call the TCAS system. And in major aircraft, a TCAS, that stands for Traffic Alert and Collision Avoidance System. And all large aircraft are fitted with that so they don't run into each other because they're moving at such high rate of speeds. It's very easy to be disoriented and not notice how fast somebody's going if they're at the same altitude, et cetera, et cetera. So footage of the encounter was later analyzed by experts at the National Aviation Reporting Center on Anomalous Phenomena with NARCAP, a nonprofit that studies UFO sightings and works toward developing safety protocols during such rare and inexplicable occurrences. Okay, Michelle, I do have to point this out. When did this event actually take place? Month of March. March 19th, 2020. Hmm. Very interesting. It's always the month of March. Seems like the month of March is very active. 
The pilots have not come forward with their identities, according to the Daily Mail, due to the stigma surrounding such controversial events. However, NARCAP Executive Director Ted Rowe assured the UK outlet that their account of the floating orb is credible, coming from two career pilots with nearly 30 years of experience combined between the U.S. Air Force and private sectors. We have a database going back to 1916. It describes four basic types of UAP encounters, and they are balls of light, spheres, cylinders, and disks, he told Daily Mail. Where's the triangles? They got to have triangles I was going to say somewhere they've got to have a triangle because that would just finish off the, the whole collection. The NARCAP report described the pilots as competent airmen, highly experienced with observing and identifying aircraft, and are capable of determining normal observations and incidents from unusual ones. So their claims were said to be very consistent with what pilots have been reporting for over 100 years. Flying a Boeing 767, the first officer, quote, believed that it was a meteor and began to say so when it suddenly stopped near the same altitude as their aircraft. Then the UFO projected an illuminating beam of bright white light on their aircraft and appeared to take a collision heading, the report said. That prompted the men to take a defensive attitude and prepare for evasive control inputs. Rather than colliding with the plane, the orb took a turn and paced alongside them at a distance of about 1,000 to 2,000 feet away, going about 575 miles per hour at 37,000 feet. Um, I thought it was a shooting star, but then it stopped. A pilot can be heard telling his colleague during the almost five-minute video. It's like an orb, man. Look at that S-word. It's pulsating. This is awesome. He, and he's not on TCAS, the radar one said. That is S with a capital hit, hot. Oh, man, look at that thing, dude. That's an unidentified flying object, bro. I can finally say I saw one. That is cool, the captain said. You saw it just drop out of the sky and just stop? He asked his co-pilot. Yeah, I thought it was a shooting star and then it stopped, the first officer replied. The skeptical airman did speculate whether the orb could be a weather balloon, a meteorological study device commonly mistaken for alien crafts. The only weather balloon we have is near, it's 15,000 feet um, above ground level. This thing's above our altitude, one said. Yeah, I'm sorry, but weather balloons don't travel at 575 miles per hour at 37,000 feet. Yeah, that's feet. crazy. We're going to lose them in the clouds. Son, Son of, of a beep! <laughs> <laughs> the captain said as they neared the end of their cruise alongside the UFO. There's weather about 40 miles off our left wing tip where this thing seems to have disappeared. It didn't have strobes or beacon or be yeah, or a beacon or nothing. So airplanes have flashing lights on them. Everybody sees them. And one of them's a beacon light and the other ones are navigational lights and strobe lights. Yeah. We see them all the time living near the airport. While this particular FedEx route was not identified in official reports, UFO debunker, 
Mick West of Metabunk. Really? Metabunk? Okay. Tide Flight FDX-82 to the mysterious sighting. West believes it may have been camera trickery caused by Venus's glow, but the pilot told NARCAP that they saw the orb with their naked eyes. I went through the analysis. There was some argument that it could have been an astronomical effect. Venus was quite bright that night, said NARCAP's row. But when you take the entire narrative of how they describe it dropped in vertically, stopped at their altitude, and then paced their aircraft, that is a very consistent story. We've had many of those. Rowe went on to explain that Venus was quite high in the west by the time the pilots departed from Query Taro Airport at 8.55 p.m. en route to Memphis. It also showed there were clouds to the west, and if Venus was parallel to his aircraft, appearing to be at his altitude, the clouds would have obstructed it, he added. The morphine teardrop shape could be attributed to a plasma exterior, Rowe also said, which could help absorb radar signals so that it does not reflect on the pilot's screens. The use of plasma in aviation isn't science fiction, as it's already being studied and used by the U.S. Air Force, including proof-of-concept experiments that showed plasma could be used to help wingless aircrafts self-lift, hover, and fly, according to 2011 research cited by the Daily Mail. Rowe complained that the Federal Aviation Administration is ignoring reports of UFOs, from reputable pilots and instead directing them to report the sighting to a civilian reporting center, meaning the phenomenon is never officially recorded with the FAA. And there you go. And now we'll get a 10-page report. Yeah, that's... (laughs) Maybe 10 and a half. (laughs) All right, I think it's time to move on. Let's go ahead and get into some... We've got shout-outs. Shout-outs. So first we're going to start with... UFO Garage. UFO Garage is a podcast about UFOs, aliens, and all things weird. The UFO Garage podcast is a fun, laid-back approach to the UFO, UAP, alien phenomenon. We love chatting with interesting people, hearing strange stories, and having a beer or two. Hosted by Joe and Ben, they are dudes. You're a dude. He's a dude. She's a dude. We're all dudes. Yeah. Next, we've got the Lost in the Dark podcast, hosted by Burton and Aaron. This is a pretty cool podcast that bills itself as an attempt to capture incredible conversations between best friends as we explore all of our passions, but especially music and the world of heavy metal. So if you're into paranormal investigations and loud heavy metal music, give them a listen. Strong language, but it's heavy metal and the paranormal. What else would you expect? Yes, and a special thank you to Burton and Aaron for being in our crossover episode with them and also recording the very cool intro for us. And we love these guys. We can't thank them enough. So make sure you look them up and uh, give them a listen if you're into heavy music. Next, we're going to go with the Brothers of the Serpent podcast. This is one of my favorites. And simply, it's just two brothers that explore the mysteries of the ages the ancients, and the modern day. So make sure you check them out. They talk about all kinds of things, UFO, paranormal, ancient technology, ancient history. Very cool couple of dudes and a very good show. 
Finally, we go across the pond to the UK and give a shout out to Phenomena Magazine, the world's most recognized e-zine of its kind. The magazine investigates the whole realm of the strange, profound, unknown, and unexplained, delving into paranormal, UFOs, cryptid, parapsychological, and Fortean events. The magazine can be downloaded every month for free in PDF format. Check out the show notes for a link to the magazine. Okay, moving on. Michelle, do we have any emails or communications from any of our listeners? Yeah, we've got a couple stories tonight. Um, so we've got Gregory writes, I've wanted to share this for a long time. One night back late eighties or early nineties on a summer's night around 10 or 11 PM, my wife and I were at a park called Shane Park right off of the Detroit river in Detroit, Michigan. And there were a hundred of other couples out that night, just enjoying the peace and beauty of the night. It was a beautiful night with a lot of stars in the sky, and then it seemed like everybody out there had the same feeling to look up. What we all saw was what we all thought was stars bunched together, starting to move around. Then we all said, those are not stars. The next day, the story was on the news, and it appears that a lot of other people all over Detroit saw the same thing. It really was something to see. Oh, I bet it was. That sounds really cool. I wonder if we can find that news article. I know. Late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. Hmm. So we'll have to we'll have to see if we can find that. Maybe we'll talk about that on our next episode. Gregory also writes, One thing that I've learned about encounters is that when someone says that they've experienced something, don't discount their claim as a crazy imagination or that they're lying. So this is why we started a Facebook group. Most people are not, most people are not insane and they know what they saw and experienced. The reason why I mentioned this point is because I have experienced several situations all my life and was kind of afraid to share um, my stories for fear of being labeled as weird or crazy or something. That's um, that stigma. Yeah. Uh, I am so happy to be a part of this platform with like-minded folks who have good reasons to know and believe that strange things can and are happening on this planet and to know that we are not crazy people. And Gregory says to everyone, peace and love always and forever to everybody. Yep, pretty much. That sums it up. And one of the big reasons, like you said, that we started this is, you know, that stigma I think keeps a lot of people from saying anything. And from what I'm gathering now is that UFOs especially, but even the paranormal is a pretty regular occurrence. But since nobody talks about it, it doesn't seem like it's a regular occurrence. Well, it's like if you don't talk about it, it doesn't exist. But this is the same gentleman who wrote about the story about Shane Park. And there were other people there that night. Exactly. So he, he and says his, hundreds of, of yeah, people. So. He and his wife were not alone. And the fact that it made the news the very next day says even that even more people than just the ones at Shane Park in the late 80s, early 90s saw that. Okay. Do we have any others? We do. We've got one more. Um, this is from Billy. Um, oh, my God. I think I, I may have seen my first UFO. 
this is where the excitement kicks in. Not in Michigan, but in California. Um, I was driving on Highway 46, headed towards Los Angeles, and I saw a ball of light. looked like maybe it was orange or like a mix of orange and yellow. It was moving um, at will, not like up and down, left or right. It was just freely moving upwards and boom, the light went off and he saw a black object. It just shot into the sky and it all happened within a matter of three to four seconds. I could tell how fast it had to go to accelerate the rate at which it did. It had to achieve the speed of light in order to create the sudden burst it did. So 186,000 miles per hour could be faster. Oh, the speed of light is actually 186,000 miles per second, yeah, not miles per hour. So if something blinks out like that, then yeah, it's probably moving pretty fast. That's crazy. So wonder how many other LA peeps. Oh, I imagine one. there's probably a lot of them that happen out in California along the coast, but I don't know how many people can actually see the sky out there with pollution and things like that with the, the and, smog not, well not just the smog but the light pollution just like being in a large city the light pollution really affects our view of the night sky okay ladies and gentlemen it is that time we've all been waiting for we are getting mr eric altman on the line but before we do that michelle why don't you tell us a little bit about our guest so this coming from Eric's website at ericaltman.net. Um, for over 40 years, I have been a fan and follower of the paranormal. I've been called a Bigfoot researcher, cryptozoologist, field investigator, paranormal enthusiast, radio host, and producer, conference and event organizer. Does a lot. When it boils down to it, I'm just an average guy who pursues some rather interesting hobbies. I'm the executive director of the newly relaunched Pennsylvania Bigfoot Society. I co-host a pretty cool internet podcast. I investigate claims of strange creature sightings and encounters and also look into paranormal claims. I've traveled around the country to various locations, events, and conferences where I've lectured on my 21 years of investigations. I've been featured in multiple documentaries, television programs, and I'm all around a nice guy. That is true. He's a very nice guy. Very nice guy. He gave us the time to come on the podcast. He's a nice guy. So he says, yes, I still investigate sightings, reports, and claims of strange and mysterious creatures. I'm the founder and director of the Pennsylvania Cryptozoology Society, former director of the Pennsylvania Bigfoot Society, member of the Society of the Supernatural, Bigfoot Field Research Organization, Bigfoot and Paranormal Society, and Goosebumps Paranormal Society. Boy, there's a lot of societies I around know. here, isn't there? <laughs> I'm also the organizer and host of the Pennsylvania Bigfoot Camping Adventure. Oh, okay, that sounds cool. And I might be a camper now. And former organizer and host of the East Coast Bigfoot Conference. Find out what I've been up to and the most recent claims I've been investigating by going to the Pennsylvania Cryptozoology Society page. So he's got a lot of links there, lots of things to check out. And without further ado, on the line, we have Mr. Eric Altman. 
Eric, thank you for joining us. Thank you for asking, Wayne. It's a pleasure to be here with you and Michelle. Yes. Hi, Eric. It's nice to have you on the show. Uh, we're very happy to have you on and something we are very interested in, and, and that is the research and study of cryptids. Yes. Very excited to hear your stories. And we do delve into the paranormal. And I know from hearing you on a different show on Spaced Out Radio that you have had some paranormal experiences in your home. So I would like you to relate some of those stories to us as well, if that would be okay. Sure. I'd be happy to. If you wouldn't mind, can you give our audience who might not be familiar with you a brief background and what you do in the area of, I guess, what do you call it? Cryptozoology or cryptids? Is it, does it cross the zoology line? Well, there really is no um, educational degree that one can to, can get for cryptozoology. Basically, what cryptozoology means, cryptos, uh, cryptos is the Greek word for hidden, and of course, zoology, animals. So you put them together, it's the study of hidden animals or animals that aren't thought to exist or uh, be extinct, but actually are still thriving and still populating. And um, so it's basically a, uh, a citizen scientist um, label, if you will. We're studying these strange creatures and animals that are thought to exist, but haven't been proven, such as Bigfoot, um, lake monsters, different types of flying cryptids, um, dogman, which you're familiar with being out of the Michigan area. So there's a variety of different types of cryptids that I do look into. Uh, my main forte is studying Bigfoot and hominid-like creatures uh, from around the country. So that's that's my main area of study. Okay. What is the... Is it the society that you started or that you run there in Pennsylvania? What is that called? It's called the Pennsylvania Bigfoot Society. Okay. And it was, it was established back in 1998 by uh, Steve Anderson and Henry Benton. They basically wanted to put together a poor man's Bigfoot collective group of people that were interested in the subject from Pennsylvania and maybe wanted to talk about it and maybe get together and research and go out and look in the woods to see if they could find anything. And uh, I joined in 1999, in 2000, Steve, for personal reasons, could no longer run the group. So he decided to step away. And being one of the original members, he asked me to take over. So from 2000 to about 2014, 15, I, I was the, the director slash president, if you will, of the group. And uh, I stepped down in 2014, 15, um, take a break from it and was talked back into relaunching the group back in 2020 and got it back up and running again. So we've been around for probably about 15 years uh, running steady. And then we just relaunched in 2020 again. Now, who makes up your researchers? Like what kind of people do you bring in? Do you have scientists involved? Do you... Are you all from different walks of life? How does that work? Yeah, we're very selective about who we bring into the group. Um, and not it's not a like elite club or like a little clique or nothing like that. We look for people who can bring um, different things to the group, whether it be uh, tracking experts, hunters, fishermen, outdoorsmen, as scientists. We have, uh, we have former law enforcement officers in the group current military officers and law enforcement officers. So we try to bring in a, a little bit of each uh, from different backgrounds and different, um, you know, I guess you call it careers in life so that they can contribute to the group 
and bring something that's going to help us to further what we're trying to do. And uh, again, we're not like an elite club or um, like we're not like the NWO, the New World Order or right, right. Illuminati. We're just a, a bunch of researchers that we're very selective about who we bring in. We want people that are dedicated and serious about doing the research and are willing to put the time in because we found over the years of just letting anybody join, we get people that say, I'm a, I'm a member, but they don't do anything or contribute. So we want people that are willing to contribute that have a, a specialty skill or something they can bring to the group. And that's what, that's what basically the group's made up of. We do have members that are members outside the state from like the New York area or Ohio, West Virginia, Maryland, um, New Jersey. Um, so, you know, any, any of the surrounding states of Pennsylvania, we do welcome people that are interested in participating and, and being an active member. So, Eric, what was it that um, made you decide to uh, research cryptids, uh, specifically Bigfoot? Well, I grew up uh, a fan of horror movies, um, like the B-horror movies, science fiction movies, stuff like that when I was a little kid. And uh, one Sunday morning, a movie came on called The Legend of Boggy Creek, which is a docudrama about uh, supposed Bigfoot that was haunting and terrorizing people in a small uh, southern community called Falk, Arkansas. And the, the movie was released in 1972, but it wasn't put onto cable TV until 1980. That's when I had seen it. And it just fascinated me that the possibility that there was some kind of hairy covered creature running around the swamps and the forests in Southern America um, around the Gulf Coast states. So I, I decided to take that up and, and look into it more and see if I could find if there was any truth to the stories that they were being relayed in this movie. And sure enough, it, it opened a Pandora's box that, that really said that wasn't just going on in a little community called Falk, Arkansas. This was a global phenomenon going on. And people from all walks of life, from all backgrounds, all ethnicities, there's no demographic of people that we're seeing and reporting encounters with these creatures. And I found that fascinating. So from the age of 10, I began to educate myself, reading everything I could get my hands on, watching TV documentaries, uh, studying the work of other researchers. Um, and then finally, in 1997, after I got married and settled down, I figured, well, maybe this is a good time to start really getting boots on the ground and finding out for myself if there truly is stuff out there because I had enough knowledge and enough education look, teaching myself and learning about this stuff to really go out and see if I could you know, determine if this was really real. And I haven't come to the conclusion 100% that it's real, but I'm about 80 to 85% sure that there is a Bigfoot out there or multiple creatures out there, I should say. Okay. I want to dive into that a little bit more here in a little bit. Um, I got some questions on my list here is I, I, I want to throw some ideas at you that I've heard from other people and actually a conversation that we had recently with a bonus episode that we did with one of our fellow uh, podcasters that that's here in Michigan, totally different kind of realm, but he's very interested and actually him and his co-host are very interested in the paranormal and I got in contact with them or they got in contact with us because we did an episode on the uh, like our third episode, second episode, something like that was about the Michigan dog man. And he, you know, wrote us right afterwards. And I had them, you know, I had them come on the show. I was like, Hey, we gotta, we gotta talk about what, uh, what, you know. And he said that when he was a little boy, he remembers being uh, visiting, I think, his grandparents or his grandfather in Michigan. And he was like five or six years old in the backyard of his house. And 
looking toward a pathway that was in the back in the woods, a deer just came flying out of the woods, jumped, stood still, looked at him as a little child, turned and ran the opposite direction down the path. And he swears that then a large hairy creature jumped out like it was chasing the the deer landed in the uh pathway looked at him and he says it was absolutely the dog man and it took off after the deer it didn't really respond much to him it looked at him and then took off and ever since then he's been interested in this dog man type of idea and um so i wanted to kind of ask you about the whole dog man in Michigan thing. Have you researched any of that in this area? And what do you know about that? I'm kind of convinced that maybe it's not dog man, but it's more of maybe a Bigfoot because there are lots of statues, which is bizarre. If you go up North in some of our Northern cities, there are statues of Bigfoot, not dog man, Bigfoot. And uh, it's pretty apparent that, somebody has seen something or something's going on there. So what's your take on, on the dog man versus Bigfoot? Well, I'm, I'm a little more skeptical about the whole dog man phenomenon. I'm not saying that it doesn't exist or not. That's not what people are seeing. I just think people are, might be misidentifying most of the animals that they're seeing and seeing a Bigfoot and, and mistaking it as a possible upright walking canid. Um, although there are very, distinct reports that are very detailed describing snouts and the animal having very dog-like features and a tail. Uh, of course, Bigfoot, um, as far as I'm aware, I haven't heard any cases where Bigfoot has a tail or a snout for that matter. However, there have been cases where the people have said it looks more ape-like. And if it is an ape-like looking creature, it would have more of a pronounced face sticking out a little bit further than a flat face. So to me, the dogman cases, I really haven't gotten too involved with them. I, of course, when I hear about them on the news or I see a newspaper article or a friend like uh, Jay Bachochin or Linda Godfrey up in the Wisconsin area have something come in, I, you know, I hear from them or I talk with them about it and, and find out what's going on. I've been to Bray Road up in, in Wisconsin and it's farmland. It's nothing really, you know, spectacular. And you drive up and down Bray Road and you're, you're when you hear about it on TV and you hear all these stories, you're expecting this magical, mystical place like Disney World. And you go and you're kind of let down. It's just farmlands. And, and it's nothing. <laughs> it's right. Barren. Small patches of trees and woods. And that's about it. But um, that doesn't mean there isn't something going on up there. People have been seeing it. and They're still seeing something up there. Um, and as in Michigan as well, when this really first kind of kicked off, um, the, the story started becoming more and more popular in the mid-1990s. And now people are seeing Dogman everywhere. It's become a, unfortunately, become almost a, not like a global sensation like Bigfoot, but more of a, a north, a midwestern, northeastern, north central Pennsylvania, not just Pennsylvania, but northeastern uh, United States phenomenon where people are seeing and experiencing these things. And now there's Dogman groups and Dogman research teams, and there's Dogman message groups on Facebook and all kinds of phenomena going on yeah. now. Um, my personal take on it, and this is just my opinion, I, I think people are misidentifying a Bigfoot, and that's what they're seeing, and, and it's not really a dogman. However, I haven't talked to many eyewitnesses in regarding the, the cases and sightings of dogman, so I can't honestly say you know, that's not what they're seeing. It's just my opinion. I think it's part of the 
I want to say Adawa tribe in northern Michigan that that has the the legend of the dog man. And I just wonder, you know, because this or my wife's nodding over here. Yeah. Um yeah, the it, the uh, the whole thing started with a couple of lumberjacks in the mid to late eighteen hundreds that said that they got ran off by, you know, a, a dog man type creature. And I just wonder if it was some of the natives there wanting to chase off the guys that were out there cutting off, you know, cutting up the trees, or if it actually was a Bigfoot that they ran into. And then they, you know, they know the local culture and the, the history of that tribe, and they just put two and two together and said, that's what it was. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm just speculating, but. It seems like that would make sense. And I can't really speak too much on the dog, man. As I said, I, I've read the stories. I've read the reports. I know there's this newspaper articles that date back to the 1800s with people having encounters with these creatures. So there's something to the phenomenon, whether or not it's a real upright walking canid remains to be seen just like Bigfoot. It remains to be seen. And all you can do is take the cases for what they are. People's case, people's reports and, you document them and you try to collect them as best you can. So how long would you say that you've actually been in this field as a boots on the ground investigator researcher out there, you know, hitting the bricks and, you know, looking into sightings and things like that? Well, 20, the upcoming year, 2022 marks my 25th year of being in the field, investigating, talking to eyewitnesses, going to locations, setting up, uh, weekend um, investigations or expeditions, if you want to call them that, traveling around the country, um, doing the research, about 25 years. Um, studying the phenomenon, it's been 41 years I've been studying the phenomenon actively now. Okay. Now, if you were to get a group together to go and, and do one of these investigations, what would that look like? What would that entail? What are your logistics? What kind of equipment do you use? How, how do you go about that process? Well, of course, we want to find people that are, are able to camp and have camped, have a camping experience, outdoor experience. We don't want to take someone from the street, even if they are uh, they have good background um, education-wise. We don't want to take them into the woods if they're not familiar with the area in the first place. Because even someone with a good education can be instantly fooled by some of the noises and things they see or experience in the forest. But we want to try to take people out there who have experience in the forest and are familiar with wildlife and what to expect while camping. That's the, our main um, objective. Um, we want to take those people out there and we want them to be open-minded, but yet objective enough to document everything and to be willing to rule out things that they experience. Not everything's a Bigfoot. Not every noise you hear, not every, every footprint you find on the ground is going to be a Bigfoot. So we need objective, open-minded people that are willing to look at it say, okay, yeah, that's a boot print, or yeah, that's a coyote call, or yeah, that's an owl. So that's something else that we look for taking out in the woods as well. We want um, open-minded people, but we want them to be objective and to be you know, um, honest about what they're, what they're finding and researching. Um, as far as equipment goes, um, we look for taking out um, anything that will help us to document sounds, um, to document footprint cast, to collect physical evidence such as uh, scat or hair or anything to that effect to collect DNA samples. Um, we usually take with us night recording equipment such as thermal flares 
or uh, forward looking infrared, um, night vision, uh, especially if we're going to be in areas at night, we want to document what we can. Um, video recorders, audio recorders. Uh, we tend to use the Zoom um, recording equipment because it, it gets a better quality recording than just a little pocket cassette recorder. Um, we do use parabolic microphones um, for documenting um, hair and scat and footprints. Footprints we take with us, any anything from plaster of Paris if you can't afford to, to take something more expensive. It's a dental stone. Dental stone is probably the best material you can take out to make a footprint cast or ultra cal. Those are the two things I recommend taking when you go out. If you want, if you find a footprint that you want to document and you want to cast, that's the material you want to use. Um, as far as DNA collections, um, they do sell DNA kits that we have uh, a couple of our members have DNA kits. They can collect hair and um, properly store it so that it can be sent off to be analyzed and studied and, and see if anything can be pulled from that uh, sample. So it's just some of the basic things we, we carry with us. Of course, we carry, uh, some of our members carry um, uh, sidearms or shotguns or pistols, rifles, simply just for protection because we are out in the wild. You never know you can run into a bear or a coyote or um, anything like that. So you always have to be protected. Um, so those are just some of the, the basic things we do when we, we plan to put together an expedition to, to do some camping and looking for Bigfoot. So in all of these camping trips and your research on the field, what are some of the most bizarre cases that you have investigated? Um, we only have what an hour, hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. Many. Okay. <laughs> there's been some really strange things that we've, we've, uh, we've come across. Um, probably the, the strangest thing that, that a majority of our members have experienced are the strange lights in the forest. Uh, we don't know what they are, and I'm not going to try to speculate what they are because I just don't know. But uh, many of our members who've gone out either on just a nighttime outing or a camping trip have experienced seeing strange balls. I guess you call them balls of light, okay. not like plasma, plasma ball lightning, but these are like small, anywhere from golf ball size to softball size balls of light that maneuver in and out around trees. They're very bright in color, almost like a flashlight beam is pointed at you, but there's no source for that beam. Um, I've seen it myself on multiple occasions in multiple different locations in Pennsylvania. And again, we have no idea what it, what it is, what it, what it could be. And I'm not going to speculate because I just don't know. Um, yeah. Cause I know normally with like the paranormal that they would consider those orbs and some sort of like presence of the deceased or, you know, spirit or spiritual. Yeah. And my question to that would be, do, since you've seen them, um, do they, do those orbs or those lights seem to move like intelligently? Like, are they going around trees seem to react to you? I mean, what, what's, uh, what do you think's going on there? Um, some of these I've seen, yes, they seem to have some kind of intelligence to them. Um, where, uh, I'll give you one example, myself and another researcher were out on a uh, nighttime Bigfoot investigation, just the two of us in an area that we know has had, had sightings in the past, historical sightings and, and activity and encounters. We um, were set up in a parking area in a very remote part of the forest. There's a few hiking trails and people go in that way, the back way to this uh, nature preserve, the camp. And while we were there getting our gear set up, a family arrived at dark, almost dark. It was a little more than dusk, but just starting to get dark. And they took their gear into the forest and disappeared. 
And probably about half an hour to 45 minutes after they arrived, we began to see an orange glow in the forest at a distance. And we just assumed that it was the family had a campfire going. But as the night progressed, this orange glow began to approach us and it stayed low to the ground. It maneuvered around trees close to us and then it would back off. And it suddenly became from going from an orange glow to an orange ball of light. And it about, probably about the size of a basketball, maybe a little bit bigger, but it maneuvered around the trees like it was snaking in and out of trees. It would get close to us within 20 to 30 feet. We could see it clearly without flashlights or any of any of our lights and it would maneuver around and it would drift further back into the forest and disappear. Then it would come back around again, almost like it had some kind of intelligence, like it was checking us out. And while we were experiencing this, um, I know I got a really bad feeling of dread, just overwhelming sense of, okay, it's time to go. So I told the researcher I was with, let's, let's get out of here. I just don't feel comfortable anymore with whatever this is. I know at one point I actually tried walking towards it. When I did, it backed away. Um, it moved away from us. So I don't know what that was. I have no idea, but um, that, that was probably one of the more bizarre encounters that I've had personally in the forest. And I, like I said, I've seen them in different locations and um, at different times with different people and other people have seen them and I haven't seen. Them. So who knows what they are? Yeah, that's, that's really interesting because um, I know some people have speculated that somehow Bigfoot may be related to the paranormal or, I mean, these words get conflated supernatural. They're a supernatural creature. They're an interdimensional transdimensional creature. That's why you can find like two footprints and then they just seem to disappear or they seem to have these incredible ability, you know, this incredible ability to jump very far distances and then disappear without a trace. Um, and then some people have uh, speculated that they are related somehow to UFOs. Mm -hmm. um, what is your feeling and what has your investigations in that regard yielded to you? Well, I, I don't know if they are paranormal related, if they have interdimensional abilities, if they're extraterrestrial. I honestly don't know. I don't know what these things are. Um, when I first started this, I, my train of thought was these were a, an undiscovered primate here in North America. And, and that's what they were, just an undiscovered ape or, or hominid. Is that and, where they come up with the, the skunk ape idea? Is, well, that's, that's based on location. Um, okay, that, so that's like south, right? The Florida area. And okay. the reason they call it a skunk ape is because it, it has a really strong odor associated with it, a skunkish type of smell. Mm -hmm. But um, there was, there's the scientific um, train of thought in this is, and this is, there are some scientists heavily involved in this um, that think that this is an offshoot, a descendant, a relative of Gigantopithecus, which is the largest known primate to exist on the, con on the planet. Um, they think it was, they know it existed over in China um, due to the large um, mandible jaw, partial jaws they found in teeth. And they speculate or assume that it may have crossed the Bering Straits over from Russia, over into the United States and North America and Canada, down into the United States and migrated. So some of these researchers speculate and scientists speculate that it's an offshoot or a descendant or a relative of Gigantopithecus that survived. And that's what my train of thought was, because the descriptions of Gigantopithecus match very closely 
what people are seeing today. So I was of that train of thought. But the longer I've been in this and the more people I've talked to and the more reading and, and educating I've done over the years, um, I've learned that there are a lot more bizarre things going on with this phenomenon than just a physical being. Now, whether or not these people are misidentifying things or have a, a great imagination, uh, this, this truly isn't happening. They're just making this up remains to be seen. However, people are reporting experiences and encounters with the UFO and a creature either at the same time and place or vice versa. One is there before the other. Um, the UFO is there, then a Bigfoot's there or a Bigfoot sighted in the area, and then a UFO sighted shortly after. Those things have been documented and recorded, especially here in Pennsylvania in the 1970s. The interdimensional um, possibility, um, the reason there's a camp in the Bigfoot community that think that's going on is because of the cases, like you mentioned, of the Bigfoot's there, people see it, and then all of a sudden it's not. It, like it simply vanishes. I've talked to eyewitnesses myself that have claimed they've watched a Bigfoot walk across the road and, and just one second it's there and the next second it's not there when it should be there. And it didn't jump into a tree. It didn't fly away. It didn't drop into the ground. It was just there and gone. So that's the reason why there's there's a speculation about this possible interdimensional uh, relation. I don't know of, and you're, you're an educator you're, yourselves, you both are. So I'm sure you're both aware that there's no physical animal that we're aware of on this planet that can travel interdimensionally. Correct, so correct. whether Bigfoot can do that or not remains to be seen, but people speculate that and theorize that Bigfoot has that ability. I don't know if that's true or not, but I've, I've talked to many eyewitnesses who've claimed that and they seem like sane, normal people, sincere people that have had a traumatizing experience. So there's no way to know what this thing is. There's no way to, to really even speculate what this thing is. People ask me what I think a Bigfoot is. And to be honest with you, I don't know. At this yeah. point. Since you are in Pennsylvania and you're, you're part of this Bigfoot research society, is there a lot of cases in Pennsylvania? How many are you guys dealing with on a monthly basis? Is, is it a hotbed there in Pennsylvania for Bigfoot sightings or other cryptids even? Oh, yeah. Pennsylvania is a very bizarre state, especially where I live here in southwestern Pennsylvania, uh, close to Pittsburgh. We've had everything from hundreds, if not thousands of UFO sightings. There are hundreds, if not thousands of haunted locations. And there are hundreds, if not thousands of cryptid sightings. And it's not just Bigfoot. People are seeing Thunderbirds, which are these large bird-like creatures with the wingspan anywhere from eight feet to 20 feet in length. Uh, people have claimed they've seen pterodactyl-like creatures flying through the air. Hmm. We've had some cases like that. Um, there have been black panther cases reported. Um, people see this big black cat, not a house cat, not like a two to three foot house cat. We're talking four or five foot big black panthers. They, they are certain they saw it. And there are other strange creatures that are people have claimed they're seeing here in the state. And it, it goes on for a long time. Currently, this year has been very slow for our group. We've got maybe a handful of cases this year. Um, some years we get a ton of them. Um, I know 2009 was probably one of our busiest years we were investigating. We had a case coming in almost once a week, and we were running around different counties and following leads. As soon as I would hang up with the phone with the witness and call my assistant director or some of the other group leaders and say, we've got another case, not even a day later, I'm getting another phone call saying I had a sighting here in this place. And we go running after that. 
So sometimes it's really busy and we get an abundance of cases and other times it's slow and we, we get very little. Right now we're in a slow pattern where we've gotten a handful, but not many this year. Is there anything that you could attribute that to in for that location with the UFO sightings, the Bigfoot sightings, the the Thunderbird sightings? Is, is there something specific to that area that you think might be kind of a hot spot for that type of activity? We haven't figured it out yet. Um, the, I work with a researcher by the name of Stan Gordon. And Stan is a, a longtime UFO researcher, cryptid Bigfoot researcher. He's been at this for about 63 years now. And um, I met Stan back in 1983, and I've been a close friend of his and associate. We've done cases together, worked on them together. And um, he and I have come up with the, um, and this is mainly his thinking, but I've noticed it too and documented it. We've come up with the thinking that the creatures are mainly seen around um, electrical sources. And what I mean by electrical sources are waterways, um, gas well lines, electrical power lines, um, transformer lines. The big, you know, you see them going through the, the mountains over the big, um, the big transformer towers. They always seem to take place around these electrical sources. Uh, and so, same with the UFOs. The UFO sightings seem to take place around electrical sources. That's the only thing we've been able to, to see as far as a pattern goes as to why there's so many sightings. Uh, otherwise, we have no idea. Um, there is a location here in southwestern Pennsylvania called the Chestnut Ridge, which I frequent quite a bit, and, and there's some other researchers that do as well. And that's, that's probably the state's most active area for UFOs, uh, cryptid sightings, haunted locations. Um, a reporter in Philadelphia back in the 1980s called the area Pennsylvania's Twilight Zone. Because there's just so much strange, weird phenomena that goes on year after year after year in this area. And what the Chestnut Ridge is, for your listeners, it's a, uh, the furthest western ridge of the Allegheny Mountains that runs from Indiana County uh, down into uh, West Virginia, Preston County, and falls just in the foothills of Morgantown, West Virginia, near West Virginia University. And that's about 100 miles long, about 5 to 10 miles wide, uh, sometimes wider at points. But it, that's where most of the activity seems to take place is in that area or in the foothills of the Chestnut Ridge. It'd be interesting to know what kind of geological, like mineralogy, it makes up that area. If if there's something there that might uh, boost that electronic frequency, you know, the um, EMF waves or whatever of the, you know, the electrons moving through those wires and creating a magnetic field that might be attracting those things on top of that ridge might have something very specific to it geologically that might amplify that as well. That's very interesting. Well, we do know that it has a very intricate cave system that runs through the ridge. There's, I think there's over 30 explored caves up there. And there's a lot of caves that haven't. So we know there's an intricate cave system. We know the area was heavily mined for coal. Um, it's not as much now as it was back in the, the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. It was very heavily mined for coal. There's a lot of limestone and quartz up in those mountains. So those are good conductors as well. So that, that's a possibility. We, we just don't really know for sure if that's what's causing the, the continued activity up there. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsor. Um, speaking of cases directly that you've investigated directly uh, about Bigfoot, are there 
or is there a case or are there a couple cases that stand out to you that really put you in that 90% sure, 80% sure that Bigfoot is real and, you know, help convince you to continue your search? What was there something that has happened there in Pennsylvania? Um, there's been several incidents that I've investigated personally that have happened here in Southwestern Pennsylvania that have, have really convinced me to keep looking and that there is something to this phenomenon. And even over in Southeast Ohio, I've had a couple experiences over there that have convinced me that there's really more to the phenomenon than just something, somebody writing something down in a book or, you know, a documentary on TV. There's, it definitely needs to be continued to be followed. I'll give you one example this took place in uh, late August of 2009. Um, there is a windmill, uh, well, it's no longer in existence, but at that time there was a windmill construction site up on the Chestnut Ridge, which I mentioned about uh, in Fayette County. And this, this area they were building those, you've probably seen them, really tall windmill towers that conduct oh, yeah. electrical energy. And they use this place to store the equipment, uh, the vehicles, all this stuff. And this is a pretty remote location. It's up in the mountains. It's probably a good uh, maybe six, seven miles from one of the, mo- the closest urban areas. And um, they, at the time, it wasn't fenced in. It is now, but it wasn't fenced in at that time. So um, in order to avoid people coming up on the mountain, stealing equipment or vehicles or tampering with anything, they hired a security team security guard team to come in and watch the place at night. And it was composed of uh, a gentleman who's still a good friend of mine to this day. Um, his name is Doug. Doug was, he, he still is a deputy constable in Pennsylvania and his night job was working as the supervisor for the security team. And this team would sit at this um, construction site on a nightly basis and just kind of watch over the buildings. They had makeshift um, offices built and, and like kind of like mobile home type of structures, mm-hmm. little offices set up and, and um, storage sheds for all the equipment and stuff like that. So they would monitor this place at night. And while one guy would stay at the site, the other guy would drive around to the different windmill locations where they were building the windmills and make sure they were safe and no one was doing anything or stealing anything or damaging anything like that. But um over a period of time from August up into probably early September, the crew was having um, nightly visitors to the construction site. And these weren't of the human kind. These were some kind of animal that would approach the construction site, would scream, would yell, would howl, uh, make guttural noises in the wood line, the tree line around the construction site, almost as if they were trying to drive the whoever was working that night away from the, the site, get them to leave. And this would go on night after night, and it would happen to so many people in the, the security team that the supervisor contacted us to come in and check it out because he said, there's something going up here. I've heard it. Other people have heard it. We don't know what it is. So we began to talk to some of these people, and we talked to the supervisor. Um, we drove up to the location. We met them there. Um, we, we talked to them about their stories. He relayed some of the experiences that some of the guys were having. Um, one guy was a diehard skeptic of anything related to Bigfoot. And he's sitting in the parking lot one night of the construction site. And he says, this is all bunk. This is all made up. I'm gonna, this isn't happening. So he sticks his head out the car window and screams. And tries to do like a Bigfoot scream. And uh, about 10 or 15 minutes later, something walked up to the back end of his pickup truck and roared at him. And it scared the heck out of him. And he just, that was it for him. He quit. 
Uh, another tale, um, one guy went into one of the wow. Porta Johns. Um, it was late at night. He went to use the Porta John, figured there was nobody around. Um, he's in there taking care of business. And the Porta Johns were set right below a big pole light. And you could see the light coming down. And he could see the figure, the shadow of a very large figure walk past in front of him on two legs in front of the Porta John. And needless to say, that scared the crap out of him. And perfect place he was where, <laughs> no, where he no was at. So, exactly. <laughs> so we got these little anecdotal stories that you know made us think, well, maybe there is something going on up here. These guys are all reporting their own little personal experiences. They're hearing these sounds. So we decided to set up uh, a weekend expedition there at the construction site and see if we could catch any of these sounds. And of all the years that I've been doing that, that was probably the most active and most intense weekend I've ever experienced. Almost like um, you were in their territory and they wanted to, to get this equipment and this stuff out of there. It sounds like. Yeah, it's exactly. And over the years, there've been other sightings and other things happen right in this vicinity within a mile, a mile and a half. So we know that this area is someplace that they don't want us to be. So getting back to this, this uh, security team, we met with Doug. He showed us the area. He said, you can stay here overnight. And um, we set a date to come up and meet him. I believe it was September 10th and 11th of 2009. And um, we were just about to go up there on the, the 10th. And he called me and says, I think I figured out what's making all the noise. I said, oh, okay, what do you think it is? He goes, it's a Bigfoot. I said, well, how do you know? He goes, because I saw it. I said, what do you mean you saw it? And he went on to tell me that just the two nights prior to us arriving on the site, he was sitting in his vehicle, um, just hanging out. There's nobody else around. He's listening to the radio. And about 75 feet away, there's a pole light. And on this pole, they have uh, a circuit box set up for to power all the um, makeshift offices and, and stuff like that around the, the construction site. It's a pretty big box. It had several breaker boxes on it. And he said he watched something crawl on the ground to the base of the pole and then stand up and start peeking around the pole, looking at him. And with the pole light coming, shining the light down on him, he could see it wasn't a person. It was hair covered. It kept leaning out, looking at him. He said, he, I was 75 feet away from it. You don't have to convince me. I know what I saw. And then it just dropped back down to all fours and, and slunk off into the darkness and wasn't seen again. So he knew what was causing the problems. And this was two days prior to our arrival. So when we got there the first night, we heard a couple of howls in the distance and maybe a scream or two, but we, we chalked it off to Coyote. It wasn't really anything too intense that Friday night, but Saturday night, we brought a full team of about, I think it was about 15 to 20 people. And this construction site was big enough that we could set teams of three to four people on each corner of the construction site and still be far enough apart that we weren't intruding on each other. We had to keep in touch by radios, walkie-talkies, and, you know, if a group is going to do something on one side, we would have to radio each other to let each other know this is us doing this, this noise, or we're doing the wood knocks or whatever. And from the first point when, when one of the groups did a wood knock, it started and all hell broke loose. We started hearing wood knocks coming from all around us, all over the, the force surrounding this construction site. We were hearing screams, howls, grunts. Um, I was probably within 10 to 15 feet of hearing something breathing very heavily in the tree line away from me. And when I tried to approach it, it backed off. And every time I would back off, it would get closer. It was like a, a game of cat and mouse. Um, behind me, I had my sister, brother-in-law and nephew 
and they're paranormal researchers. So they wanted to tag along. So I brought them. They could hear what was going on. They were kind of amazed to hear this heavy asthmatic breathing coming right from inside the tree line. And I've heard a lot of animals breathe. I've heard bear. Um, they make that popping sound and the huffing sound. This was nothing like that. It sounded like a person with a really bad case of asthma with twice the lung capacity that a human would have. And uh, it was, it was very intense. And I wanted to try to get a better look at it. So as every time I tried to approach it or move closer to the wood line, it would back away. And eventually it started walking away from me to my right. So I followed it. I stayed outside the tree line, following it along the tree line as it walked through the woods. And you could hear branches breaking, big, big branches breaking and snapping and cracking as this thing walked. And when it got back to the far left corner of the construction site, something behind me on the right corner of the construction site started knocking wood. And primates do that. They clack rocks and they knock wood to, to dry to drive off predators. Uh, so there was something at that construction site, more than one of these things. And they were all around us all night long. They were growling, um, grunting, breathing, wood knocking, screaming. And we had teams just radioing. We're hearing something up, around, up here around us making noise. We'll go investigate. Well, we can't get close to it. Every time we try, it backs away. We back away. It was playing cat and mouse with us all night long. And it continued for probably about three hours. And finally, we got to the point where, like, there's nothing else we can do here. You know, we've done everything we do. We've, we've recorded. We had a whole bunch of audio recordings. We had people just in that were, I wouldn't say diehard skeptics, but they were kind of skeptical about, you know, the research and being a member. They walked away pretty much convinced that there was something in those woods that night. And, and it wasn't a normal wild, wildlife that they're used to uh, experiencing. But that, that blew my mind because I've never had so much activity happen in one span of time in one location is that that happened that night in, in uh, 2009. Wow. You guys are probably pretty lucky that you weren't attacked. If it, if it is some kind of a primate, I, I know that, I, well, I don't know how advanced these, these Bigfoot might be that they would decide what their reason would be not to attack you if you're in their territory. Cause like chimpanzees are known to go out on raids and will kill and tear apart other chimpanzees that are not part of their, their troop and, and will, will destroy anything that comes into their territory. I mean, they make little war bands and they go out into the, into their territory searching for anybody who's intruding and, and vicious why do you think that they didn't like get physical with you guys? Like this is a weird example, but a mother bear protecting her cubs. If you want a bear to attack you, they, you know, you go by their cubs and, and they don't care who you are. Generally though, if you run into a bear by itself, they'll look at you and then just kind of go on their way. I mean, I had that experience when I was like 12 years old, I was hiking with my family uh, we were portaging from two different lakes, carrying a canoe. And I had a backpack with dried food and things like that. And we were separated. And so we were just walking through these portages and I heard this massive scratching on trees. And I looked over and sure enough, there was a black bear standing on two legs, marking its territory with its paws, you know, and just tearing up the tree bark. It looked over at me and it kind of flopped down and, I don't think it was coming after me because I dropped my pack and was running the other way, but there was nothing behind me. So 
is there there seems like there has to be some kind of intelligence in these things that they're more interested in scaring you guys off than they are in causing you know to to kill you in their territory what do you make of that well i think i think you're right you're i think you're onto something there with the intelligence i don't think they're physically out to hurt us otherwise we'd have more documented cases and there are a few cases where these creatures have actually reportedly killed a human being and that was after it was shot at or something the, the person did something to uh, provoke that attack but in the cases where if you're in an area where they're at and they don't want you there the most aggressive that i've heard them get and i've read about and experiences they'll do something called a bluff charge where they'll come at you but they won't physically hurt you they'll, they'll try to scare you they'll throw rocks at you sticks at you which is also as you know primate behavior they throw rocks and sticks and they make these screams and, and it's almost like intimidative behavior to try to drive you out of their area. That's what they want to do. They don't seem physically aggressive where they want to hurt you. They just don't want you to be in where they're at. Now, I'm sure I've read this from other people and I'm sure this has happened. If they don't feel threatened and they don't feel like you're encroaching on their, their young or a food source or anything like that, there are cases where they've just turned and walked away and there's been no any kind of defensive posturing done by these creatures. Um, they just, you know, they see you up oh, oh, as a human. I'm going the other way like a bear does. And I've had those experiences with the bear too, you know, come pretty close to 40 yards to a bear and it just drops and runs the other way. So uh, I think that they're not aggressive to the point where they're going to physically hurt you unless you're provoking them either through shooting at them or posturing some kind of form of violence towards them then I think it's a possibility that they could, in fact, physically hurt you. But I think most of the time, if in everything I've read and experienced and talked to eyewitnesses, it's just a, a more of a defensive posturing or an intimidation posturing where they, they don't want you there. So they're going to do what they feel you're scared of, the, the screaming, the howling, the rock throwing, the stick throwing, the beating on their chests, their bluff charges, just to get you out of there. And most people take off except for stupid people like us, the researchers who stay there and want to try to document this stuff. So yes, I think you're onto something there with the intelligence. Yeah. It, it, it seems like that they, they recognize you as a creature, you know, like a sentient creature, maybe like them. They just want you to run off. They just want you out of their territory, you know, get out of here. We don't want to hurt you kind of a thing. But I also did hear a little bit about that case of where somebody was supposedly killed by a Bigfoot. Do you have any more information on that? It was just a glance of information that I had read about the possible killing of a, a person by a Bigfoot. Can you get into any more details on that? There have been, like I mentioned, there's been a few documented cases over the years. Uh, one of the probably the more notable cases was written by um, one of our former presidents, Teddy Roosevelt. He wrote a book called The Wilderness Hunter. And in the mid-1850s, supposedly a trapper named Bauman and his trapping partner went into southern, um, I believe it was southern Idaho. And they found an area where they were going to do some beaver trapping. And they had an experience with what they called a wild man, because at that point in the 1850s, Bigfoot wasn't a real term. So they only knew it as some kind of hairy wild man. And they had several encounters with it. They took shots at it on several occasions to try to, to kill it or drive it away from their, their lean-to. It would come around their lean-to at night. 
And after a couple of days camping in this area, they had had enough, decided, let's get out of here. Um, Bauman went to collect the traps while his partner stayed at the campgrounds to collect the camping gear, pack it up and, you know, get ready to put on the horses and get out of there. When Bauman returned, he found his trapping partner dead with a broken neck and huge fang marks on the side of his neck with these large human-like footprints all around the body. So that, that's one of the poor, probably the more notable cases. That have been I think that's the one up. I've, I, yeah, I think that's the one I had heard about and, and that, yeah, yep. I think that's it. Okay. Yeah, that's let's, just a very, very brief summary of that story, but you can read about it in his book, The yeah. Wilderness, Wilderness Hunter. Okay. Let's uh, jump into evidence about Bigfoot or collect it by Bigfoot. Um, one of the things I was talking about with um, my buddy, um, Burton from another podcast that we did the bonus episode last night. We, he asked me what I thought about cryptids. And I said, well, considering that, you know, even though technology makes our world seem very small and we can travel pretty much anywhere in the United States, maybe about 12 to 15% of the United States is actually settled. The rest of this area is wild area. I mean, it's, it, there's not people everywhere. Just because you see people everywhere in a city doesn't mean, you know, you can't drive outside the city 20 minutes and be in wilderness and, and with all kinds of animals and things. I said, so in my mind, there's a good probability that there are creatures out there that we don't know of. And we got into talking about the fact of, well, what about people that say there's never been a body found? And can you kind of elaborate on your stance on, because we talked about, you know, do you ever find a dead deer in the woods? Maybe you find some bones, but, and we talked about scavengers and decomposers and things like that. What is your um, thoughts on finding a deceased Bigfoot or what might happen to him or I mean, I've got some ideas if they're intelligent and what they might do. I mean, elephants have a, a graveyard that they go to to die. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that and maybe what evidence you might have to back up some of your thoughts. Well, I don't have evidence of a, a Bigfoot graveyard or them burying their dead, anything like that. But um, there is plenty of evidence to support what you brought up about the decomposing the scavengers. Uh, as you know, when an animal die, dies naturally in the wilderness, usually within a week to two weeks, that animal is completely gone. And small predators, porcupines, mice, they come in and they, they like the calcium and, and the stuff from the bones. So they, they spread those bones out. Unless you're uh, a scientist, um, either an anthropologist or a zoologist that knows what he's looking for, he, you come across a bone in the woods and you're just going to be like, oh, it's just probably a deer or a bear and you write it off as that, and you continue on your way. Um, you know, it, unless you're scientifically trained to, to know what to look for in the forest, you're going to blow it off, and you're going to be on your way. So I think decomposure and uh, scavengers is a big reason why we don't find a Bigfoot. Plus, I think if the only way you're really going to find a dead Bigfoot is to be at the right place at the right time. It's like looking for a needle in a haystack, but that needle's constantly moving. You don't know where to go. You don't know when to go somebody it's like hitting a lottery somebody's going to have to be at the right place at the right time and even then if they find a bigfoot in the forest and they go tell somebody you know what are the odds of them coming back and you know it's still going to be there you don't know right but, and and what if they're not you know who's gonna 
believe them, you know? Oh yeah, sure. And and they're not going to want to waste their time, you know? And as time ticks away, that body's decomposing, you're getting the fungi growing and, and making its way through the body and, and all of that. So and it could be just a bear that they stumbled across That's and they true. think it's a, they think it's a Bigfoot and they go tell their buddies or somebody, you know, they come out there and they all they see is fur and some bones and maybe some tissue. And they're like, Oh, I see. It's just a bear. And they go on, but it, it really could have been a Bigfoot. You don't know. But I, I, I think honestly, there's, there's a couple possibilities that we might be dealing with the intelligence factor that if they are intelligent beings, which the majority of people think they have a higher level of intelligence than just a deer or a bear i think that that's possible that they do have like a a bigfoot graveyard maybe somewhere deep in the forest very remote where they go to to die in solitary uh, confinement if you will or peace you know so nothing bothers them they they could have a social structure where they're they're actually burying their dead much like humans do we, we don't know and it's all speculation and it's all just conjecture but those are possibilities that are thrown out there when it comes to that, that whole topic of why don't we find a body? My personal thinking is they decompose so fast and the scavengers pick apart those bones that within seven to 10, 15 days, they're gone. Yeah. Unless, like I said, unless you're a trained scientist, you're not going to know what to look for. You come across a a femur or a foot bone that looks relatively suspicious. eh, Maybe it's a deer, maybe it's a bear. And then you continue on your way and let it go. Well, you know, it's interesting because recently I saw a um, news article where, and I don't know if you've seen this or not, but there's a species of monkey, and I want to say it's in Brazil that they've been observing, who they are now saying have entered their stone age. So this one species of monkey has started using uh, tools to go about, you know, and, and, and I guess it's more intricate than just taking a rock and smashing it on top of something they're actually manipulating tools now they're a small they're a small primate but if they're doing that and and their their species is x years old and they're learning how to do that i mean we can extrapolate out to the the bigfoot if they've been around for you know if they're a part of japan was it gigantopithecus right They've been around that long. They could uh, be a lot more intelligent or, you know, maybe evolved along the side of us, but in the shadows, you know, so it, it kind of leads me to my next question, specifically with you and your group, what kind of evidence have you besides like recordings and stuff like that? Let's leave those off to the side for a minute like specific physical evidence what have you guys found the big thing is the footprints um we've casted um various sizes and widths of footprints in locations where it's not impossible for a human to be walking barefoot but why would a person be walking in those conditions barefoot um and especially when there's been a sighting reported right there at that location then you find those footprints shortly after you get on scene that kind of backs up the sighting. Why would a human be walking barefoot? And what are the chances you'd have uh, a human with a size 14 or 15 inch foot walking barefoot in that area? I mean, don't get me wrong. Humans have those size feet. And I mean, look, Shaquille O'Neal, 22, 23 right. size foot. So there are people that have those, those huge feet, but they've, they're found in locations where the, almost like 
you wouldn't expect to find them there. Like Bigfoot's walking there saying, I'm not going to leave tracks here because, you know, nobody's <laughs> going to find them. <laughs> I'm going to walk down this, this main road, right down next to the road so people can find the tracks. That's not the case. They're, they're being found out in the middle of nowhere or in snow where, where you're finding tracks in snow. It's very unlikely somebody's going to be stupid enough to walk barefoot through, you know, a quarter of a mile of snow <laughs> and not worry about getting frostbitten or hypothermia. You know what I mean? Um, so cases like that, we've, we've made plaster castings of footprints. That's our primary um, evidence that we found, but there's been a couple of cases where we've pulled uh, strands, probably four or five inch long strands of hair from uh, broken pine trees or uh, trees that have been broken probably about three quarters of the way up, smaller saplings and stuff like that. Um, we sent them off. Um, some of them come back as bear, which is typical because we, I know, and you know, bear do like to break trees, territorial, ter- territorial markers or scratching, whatever. But there's uh, other cases where they haven't been identified. And mm. yeah, you can't say what they are because, you know, there's not given a match, but you can't say what they aren't because right. <laughs> they haven't given a match. So we have a couple of cases like that where we sent hair off and just, we can't afford the DNA testing because I'm sure you're aware DNA testing oh, is yeah. quite expensive. Yeah. And it's just a small volunteer group with no budget. We, we get that report back that they don't match anything under the microscope. So we want to send it off for testing. Well, I ain't got $1,500 to throw yeah, down and exactly $3,000 to throw down. I work for a living. So <laughs> right. I got, got bills to pay, but we've had a couple of those cases come back and the, we told the, the person who's holding the hairs for us, if we come across some donations or contributions, then yeah, we'll, we'll send them off or, but they're being stored and, and held right now. Okay. So. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Um, switching gears a little bit, a very famous cryptid that, that I have heard of and has been made famous. And I know Michelle knows about this cryptid, the Mothman. Mm. That's a whole can of worms in itself. Yeah. So what can you tell us about that? I find that very interesting. Well, I don't know if you want to call the Mothman a cryptid or not, because at this point, no one seems to know what the Mothman is. It seems to be from reports, uh, people's eyewitness reports, seven, six to seven foot tall, gray or black covered humanoid figure with large wings, big red eyes that seem self bioluminate. They, they, they illuminate themselves. Um, and it seems to not really resemble a human, but have a human-like shape to it. Um, the ability to move very quickly, fly very fast, and it likes to terrorize people. Um, it was mainly seen around the Point Pleasant, West Virginia area in the 1960s, 66, and 67, before the, the Point, uh, Point Pleasant Bridge collapsed, the Silver Bridge collapsed. Then the sightings kind of dwindled off and... As of recent, it's been seen around the Chicago, Illinois area. They have the Mothman of uh, Illinois sightings going on right now, where it's been seen quite frequently. Um, so basically what the Mothman is, is some kind of creature. I don't know if you want to call it a cryptid. Some people speculate it's an alien. Some people speculate it's paranormal. We really don't know. But it's it's been seen in several different locations throughout the country, not just Illinois and Pennsylvania, but other countries as well. Um, when they have the, uh, um, the, uh, I believe it was the nuclear accident over in Japan. There was supposedly a sighting over there that took place right around that time. 
Um, it was seen in Chernobyl, uh, reportedly around the time of the Chernobyl accident. So was been, that Fukushima? Was that the, the more recent one with the right. tsunami? Oh, okay. Yeah. That, that's the first I've heard of that because I, I always was under the impression that this thing seems to be like the, you know, a bad omen. It like shows up before something really horrible happens in the case of the West Virginian bridge situation. Yeah. And that's, that's why people have that, that, uh, speculation or assumption about it, that it's a harbinger of doom because it shows up around natural disasters or unnatural disasters like the Fukushima incident or Chernobyl, um, the, the bridge, some people equated that it was the Mothman that did it, while others say it was trying to warn people of the, the pending collapse. Um, and no one really seems to know what it is. But why I said the, the whole Mothman thing is a, a can of worms is because in Point Pleasant at that time, it wasn't just Mothman being seen and reported. Um, it started with a huge flap of UFO sightings over the Ohio Valley that went as far as up to Ohio down through Point Pleasant. And they were seen almost on a nightly basis all up and down the Ohio River. And that was going on through the mid-60s through probably still continues to this day. Uh, there was other factors going on in the area that were, weren't Mothman-related, paranormal things like um, poltergeist activity in people's homes was happening. Um, mm -hmm. TVs turning on and off, a lot of static noises on the radio um, and TV sets. Uh, people were visited in quite a number by the men in black, the supposed um, government officials or strange, mysterious men that would show up wearing completely black uniforms and uh, would warn people not to talk about their experiences to try to shut them up or hush them up. So that was going on too as well. So there was a lot of things going on in Point Pleasant during that time. It wasn't just the Mothman. So they, that's why people equate this to maybe it's a whole different phenomenon in itself, a, a paranormal related phenomenon rather than a, a cryptozoological phenomenon. But yeah. Yeah, there's, there's more people that have studied it far more than I have. And they're probably far more first on it than I am. I know there's a, a museum down in, in Point Pleasant dedicated to the Mothman. And um, there's some friends of mine that, that have looked into the phenomenon very intensely and, and very closely. They're, they're probably much better apt to talk about it than I am. But I know the whole Mothman phenomenon still goes on today. Uh, people are seeing it in the Chicago, Illinois area and all around the country. We still get reports of this people encountering Mothman from time to time. Interesting. Um, jumping back to Bigfoot for just a couple minutes here. Is there any possible relation or correlation that you know of that Bigfoot might be involved in like Skinwalker Ranch? I know there have been reports of a Bigfoot like creature or creatures, and maybe that's the Skinwalker. I'm not sure, but you know, Skinwalker Ranch seems to be a hotbed of insane paranormal ufo activity and bigfoot was one of the possible things happening there what has any of your research into that shown if well, i i haven't i haven't received any reports of bigfoot uh possibly being a skinwalker now i know there are people that have especially in the case of the skinwalker ranch i remember reading about the nids team watching a portal open up on the farm, the, the ranch, and some kind of hominid, hairy hominid climbing out of the portal 
stepping down onto the ground and running off into the dark, the darkness. Exactly. I remember reading about that. Yeah. And there were other Bigfoot sightings on the property out there as well. And um, it might be paranormal related. Um, it might be skinwalker related. I, I don't know. I've never personally had any um, cases submitted to me that were skinwalker related or possibly involved the shape shifting creature or, or any of that, any of that nature. I know there are cases out there um, that have been documented over the years, but nothing, nothing around here that I'm aware of. Okay. And other than location, is there something specifically different between a Bigfoot and a Yeti? Other, you know, Yetis are mountainous, uh, you know, in my mind, anyways, mountainous dealing with cold temperatures, low oxygen content, whereas Bigfoot's more of a temperate forest dwelling type of a cryptid. What are the difference in the two? Well, the Yeti actually is more of a temperate type of creature um, over in Nepal, um, the, the Himalayas, Himalayas if you will. Um, they're seen occasionally up on the mountains, but more in the dense, thick forests and jungles of Nepal. That's where they're seen. And people, I don't know why, maybe it goes back to the abominable snowman uh, from Rudolph. People seem to think these things are white when actually they're reported to be brown or black in color. Ah, and, and they're okay. very similar, very similar to Bigfoot, um, but maybe a little bit smaller in stature, much, much more aggressive where they've been reported to, to seen uh, attacking yaks. And there's even uh, an encounter over in, in uh, I believe it was in the 1970s, where a Sherpa girl was attacked by a Bigfoot after it killed her yak. Um, mm. But there are those cases. But they're not much different in description as far, and, and location is where they, they dwell. The Yeti is a name that the, is, is um, given to the creature based on, you know, that's the, the, the Nepalese and the Sherpas. That's what they call this creature, a Yeti. Okay. Um, here in the United States, they call it Bigfoot. And before 1958, when it got the, the name of Bigfoot, they called it the wild man or wild woman in the forest. So that's really, the location is really the big thing. I mean, here in the United States, they're known as Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Native American names for the creature. Um, there's over 200 Native American names. Um, but we're, just for argument's sake, we're just going to call him Bigfoot. And okay. Over there, over there in um, Eastern Asian continent, you know, Nepal, it's known as the Yeti. Or there's different names like Russia calls him the Almasty or Almas, and, and different locations around the, the the continent have different names for the creature. Have you has your group been in any contact with groups over there investigating those creatures at all? Not in, not in the uh, Himalayas now, not, oh, okay. in, not in Nepal or anything like that. Um, I know some researchers that have traveled over there and done some research, but I've never talked with them about their research over there or you know, have communicated with anybody over there overseas. Okay. Um, and then before we let you go, there's a little bit into the paranormal I want to talk to you about. And I know you've had some paranormal experiences and um, while you were talking about looking into the Bigfoot on the construction site and what was going on there, you had mentioned you had family members that were paranormal investigators that were there with you. Ghost, spirits, hauntings, paranormal activity. Have you done that kind of research and what kind of background or things have you experienced in those regards? 
Well, I consider myself a paranormal enthusiast. Um, I belong to a paranormal research group, which my, I mentioned my family, my sister, brother-in-law, and nephew are part of called Faye West Paranormal. And I've been part of different paranormal teams over the years, Goosebumps Paranormal, a variety of different paranormal research teams. And I've done some residential investigations and as well as some famous locations where I've investigated. Um, I do that more of a, for fun and just to have, I guess you call it the thrill-seeking experience, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I don't get into it like I do the Bigfoot stuff. I'm more serious about the Bigfoot stuff than I am the paranormal stuff. And I, especially after moving in the house I live in now, I've kind of shied away from the paranormal stuff because I know it's real. I know it, it does happen. I, I've experienced it plenty of times here where I live. So you don't have to, I don't have to go to a prison or I don't have to go to someone's haunted home to have an experience. Or an ab- have, abandoned a sane asylum. Yeah, I can have that right here in my own house. So I've kind of backed away from, I still go out in investigations with my family. And when they, they call to say, Hey, we're going to go check out this house or a haunted fire, old haunted fire station or old haunted building or whatever. I'll go. But just a, it's more of like a, um, what do they call it? A, a thrill seeking or um, that kind of stuff. You know, just to have that scare or, you know, cause I, I know the paranormal is real. You don't have to convince me of it. I don't have to document it to prove it to anybody. Um, I just go to enjoy it. And uh, like I said, so what, go what's going on there in, in your house that's directly affected you? Well, just to just take a step back from that real quick. Um, we moved into our house in 2017, in June of 2017. And shortly after we moved in, I had my first paranormal experience where my uh, son and wife were elsewhere in the house. And I heard a huge crash in one of the bedrooms and thinking one of the cats knocked over a box that was packed with either furniture or stuff for the room or whatever, I went to check and didn't find anything. And shortly after that, we began hearing the knocking on the walls, footsteps up and down the hallway, doors opening and closing, <clears throat> excuse me, lights going off and on by themselves, TVs turning off and on by themselves. Just you name it, the gambit it was happening. We had a, a kitchen cabinet ripped off the wall um, in October of 2019. Uh, where we were all sleeping and there wasn't anything real heavy in the cabinet to make it fall. It literally came off the wall about three feet away from the counter, dropped on the middle of the kitchen floor and it was shattered into pieces. Um, that, that was unnerving in itself. Um, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis in 2017. And um, I have issues with, especially with my shoulders. And I had shoulder surgery to repair some tears in my shoulders because of the inflammation in my shoulder got so bad it started splitting some of the tendons and muscles. So I had the shoulder surgery done and it wasn't more than maybe a, a month, maybe a couple of weeks after the shoulder surgery, I was in my kitchen and we were having problems with one of our water lines. So we had a plumber coming to the house to check it. And he knocked on the door. I was standing at the top of the steps and saw him. And I went to step down off the top step to go let him in at the front door and something with the hand in my back pushed me and I went down the steps. And as I was going down the steps, my first thought was, I, I'm not going to land on my shoulder. So I reached out instinctively to grab one of the banister rails to stop myself from going down. And I kept going and hyperextended my shoulder. And I just had my second shoulder surgery because of that, like just not even eight weeks ago. I'm still recovering from my second shoulder surgery because it, it physically damaged my shoulder again. And I, it took them a while to, to finally diagnose it and get it fixed. But I've had that happen to me. Uh, my wife got pushed down the stairs 
she felt an elbow in her back um, and she tore her MCL and ACL and eventually just led up to recently having full knee replacement done because of the torn things in her knee. So there's something wow. in our house that doesn't like us. Um, my son's down here in the basement with me right now. He's, he's on his computer, but he's had experiences down here in the basement where um, he's heard loud crashes in the garage. And he'll send me a message on Facebook, waking me up saying, was that you? Or I'll hear a bang upstairs and send something down to him saying, was that you? And, and both of us will say that wasn't me. Or we'll share stories like he heard something down here in the middle of the night that woke him up or that weirded him out. And I hear it too. Um, we have dog, we have three dogs. And for some reason, they bark down the hall when there's nobody down the hall. Um, it's obvious they know something there that we can't see. Um, we have a dog in our house that barks constantly at everything, every, the slightest little noise he barks at, but there'll be times where he's fixated on something and barking and barking and barking 45 minutes later, he finally calms down, but we're looking at like in the kitchen, like what's in the kitchen he's barking at and there's nothing there. So just weird stuff like that's happened for the, since 2017, it finally slowed down a little bit. I want to say in 2020, maybe it finally kind of backed off and it got to the point where these things were happening not all the time, but more sporadically because when, from 2017 up to that point, it was happening at least two, three times a week where something would happen notable. And I'm talking like we're down in the basement in the laundry room, folding clothes. Nobody's near the TV remote. Nobody's near the TV. The TV turns on. There's no reason for it. Um, we have an electric fireplace here in our, my finished basement. My wife is laying on the couch. She's thinking, man, is it cold down here? And she didn't say it out loud, but she's thinking it. No matter as soon as she finishes the thinking that the electric fireplace kicks on by itself. And it has a remote. You physically have to flip that switch right. to turn the electric fireplace on. And she hears the click and sees the flame spout out of the electric fireplace. <laughs> so there's something here. And I've done research. I've had five paranormal teams come in. I've had several psychics come in the house. Um, they've done the research. Um, we had one group here in the basement with me that was uh, investigating. They had humongous levels of EMF and K2 uh, hits and other things going off. And then the next group comes in and there's nothing. There's nothing going on. Um, we had a group sitting on the, to my left, we had a couch on the wall over there and it was quiet, but all the meters were going off. We were getting high levels of EMF, but there was no, nothing electronic on except for the equipment. And I said, joking, I said, all right, well, if you're not going to show yourself except for the equipment, do something. How about knocking on the wall for us? And no sooner did I say that right behind the guy's head, there was a huge boom on the wall. Wow. <laughs> it freaked him out. He was like, wow, I'm, did you hear that? <laughs> so there's something weird going on in our house. Um, it's been going on for since we moved in. Um, I've done physical research at the library and online trying to see if anybody's died in the house or anything like that. There was only one family that, that moved in the house since 1973 when the house was built. They lived here until they moved out in 2017. When we moved in, nobody's died in the house. We have no explanation for what's going on here. And, and it might be somebody theorized maybe something followed me home from a paranormal investigation I did. Yeah. Michelle's over here. Yeah, nodding I'm nodding because I'm just wondering, <laughs> even with like the orbs in the forest, with the lights that you've seen, if something didn't attach itself to you. Yeah, I've, I've been to some pretty dark places, some pretty dark places, and, and that's a possibility. Um, although we say 
prayers of blessing and and whatnot, try to cleanse ourselves. Something follow me home. I've had psychics tell me that there's definitely two spirits in our house. There's one that's um, benign and it tries to keep us safe. And there's one that's kind of darker. That's trying to do some nasty things to us, but she can't pinpoint where they came from or why they're here or what their intent are. One's just a nastier one and one's a more benign spirit. So I don't know. Yeah. And that's the main reason why I don't do a lot of paranormal investigations. Right. You kind of had enough of that and you're dealing with it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, you know, it's good that it slowed down for 2020 because 2020 was such a crappy year that even the paranormal said, Hey, I'm, I'm taking a break (laughs) on this one. You know, 2020 said, you think you got a bad hold my beer kind of a situation. So even the spirit said, no, we're going to, we're going to take it easy. Man, that's, that's some crazy stories. It still, it still goes on in the house. It's just not as frequent as it was. Is it still as violent? Like, are you still feeling like the pushing or the. Not so much the the physical stuff. Yeah. The most recent thing happened a couple of weeks ago. um, Probably. I want to say the end of August, maybe the beginning of September, uh, my wife and I were in the living room watching TV and uh, that same set of stairs that goes down where I fell and my wife fell, we were both pushed. Um, We have two, she made like, they're like coat hanger um, shelves that she made and painted up real nice and, and they're solidly nailed to the wall. Um, I hung them myself. So I know they were solid. And they, one of them wasn't, ha- one had coats on it. The other one just had a couple of keys. And I think maybe some stuff on the, the shelf of the top. Nothing heavy though. But sure. while we're watching TV, this thing lifted off the nails and came crashing down on the floor. And we heard the crash. I got up and went and looked. And sure enough, it's on the floor. I investigated the nails are still intact in the wall and the hangers are still intact on the back of the the shelving unit. So it's like something lifted it off the, the nails and dropped it on the floor. So oh. I'm still, I'm still puzzled by that one. I, I don't know how that's possible, but yeah. it happened. Wow. Other than those orbs that you had seen in the forest that seemed to have been interacting with you and seemed to be under some type of intelligence. Uh, have you had any UFO encounters yourself? Um, in 2010, I think it was, uh, we were investigating an area in central Pennsylvania known for Bigfoot activity. And there have been UFO sightings reported in the area, but we were there mainly to do a, big, a Bigfoot outdoor investigation. And there were, I think, four, maybe five of us that saw it. Um, we were on a gas well line and um, in the middle of the forest up on the mountain. And in the distance, we were watching, uh, I guess the best way to describe it is a white light in the sky. Um, looked like a kind of a pinpoint light that was moving across the sky. And we just all figured it was a satellite. Somebody pointed out, we were looking at it as a satellite and we were watching it and the satellite kind of picked up speed and then quickly stopped and began moving in different trajectories. Like it made a 90 degree turn. Then it started doing figure eights and zigzags and it would go real high up in the, in the sky where we almost lose sight of it. And we'd see it quickly drop back down again. And this went on for almost a good 20, 25 minutes where we radioed another team member who was in a different location in the woods and said, 
you got to come up in here and see this. We want to make sure somebody else you know, comes into this and sees this, make sure we're not just hallucinating. So sure enough, Dave came up and joined us and he watched this thing flying around the sky. And I was even to the point where I was looking down at the ground to take my eyes off the object, thinking maybe my eyes were playing tricks on me, focusing on the ground then looking back up. And sure enough, it's still doing these really odd maneuvers in the sky, zigzags, loop-to-loops, figure eights, off real high and then dropping down low and went on for about 20 minutes and then it just disappeared. Um, one point we saw a plane flying where we could definitely tell it was a plane. It had the, the flashing lights on it and it was moving at a, a set speed. We saw this light move towards this airplane, go above it and keep pace with the airplane. Then all of a sudden it just dropped back and let the airplane continue while this thing just kind of stayed in like a hovering position. The plane moved forward. This thing stayed still and just kind of dropped back and then started doing its maneuvers again. Uh, I've seen that. And the other one I've seen was up on the Chestnut Ridge, um, which was last year. Um, my research partner, Tom Meehawk, and I and uh, our other research partner, Ricky Churry, were up in an area near one of the windmill towers. And um, we were doing Bigfoot stuff again. We weren't really looking for UFOs or looking for anything else paranormal or weird. And um, I just happened to glance up and notice this really bright white light in the sky. And I said to Tom, I said, hey, does that look like a satellite or a planet? You know, I, I don't know what it is. And he looked at it and as we were watching it. It went from a stationary position to slowly start moving. And then it sped up and just completely disappeared. And it didn't like fly off in a different direction. It didn't go behind a cloud bank because we could see other stars around it. It just was there, started moving faster, faster and gone. So I don't know what that was either. That could have been anything. I don't know. But those are the only two things that I've experienced in my lifetime that could have been UFOs. Awesome. And one of the last questions I have for you, do you have any ties here in Michigan? Do you ever come visit or do anything here in Michigan? Um, a college roommate of mine lives in Michigan. Oh, okay. <laughs> former, former college roommate of mine lives in Michigan. Um, I got invited to speak at the uh, Michigan Bigfoot Conference in 2019, 2020, and then they canceled it due to COVID. Yeah. And I don't know if they ever held it again. I haven't heard back from them, but that I, and I also DJed a wedding up there in Michigan. <laughs> Gosh, way. I think it was my college roommate's wedding. I DJed for him many, many, many years ago, but that's really my only ties for Michigan. At least you got some kind of ties here to Michigan. So we, we are no, you guys. <laughs> yeah. And now us, if people want to learn more about what you're doing, what you're, uh, the Bigfoot Society is up to, what can they check out? And do you have any other appearances or anything coming up that you want people to know about? Uh, if they want to learn about the, the Pennsylvania Bigfoot Society, they can go to our website, which is PA Bigfoot for Pennsylvania. Just all that one word, PA Bigfoot lowercase.com. Um, you can see some of our past cases. You can read about our past cases, see pictures, videos, learn about what the group's doing. If you've had a sighting or an encounter that you want to file with us, you can go to that website and someone from the group will contact you. Uh, my personal website is ericaltman.net. And that has a little bit of everything involved with it uh, that I've done over the years, as far as research goes, uh, my appearances, my, my documentary films, I've been in lectures, all that stuff, newspaper articles, all that fun stuff. Um, as far as appearances go, I'm going to be, speaking on november 5th at the weird and wild con in west virginia um down in i believe the central part of the state um but if you go onto facebook and type in weird and wild con in west virginia you'll find information on it there and uh 
yeah, that's, that's the last one I have for 20, 2021. I'll be booking stuff for next year or so. Okay. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you very much, Eric. We're going to close this out and uh, we are very happy to have you on and, you know, expose your information to our audience. And it was great having you. Yes. Thank you, Eric, for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Okay. So besides the, the stories of Bigfoot and the orbs. Yeah, that was very okay, interesting. That, and, and here's the thing. And I say that I'm not a camper. I'm just not a camper if I hear sounds like we had at the beginning of the show. <laughs> That's when you're not going to see me out in the woods. Or if you're in a porta john and you see a giant shadow of some type of creature walking outside of it. And it's not one of the construction workers. That's not what you want to see. In my mind, Bigfoot, you won, dude. I'm out of (laughs) here. This this land is all yours, man. I'm taking my toys and I'm going home. Exactly. So, but something about the the or the orbs out yes. in the woods. Mm-hmm. Back but, in the day, what were those called? Were those like willow wisp? Isn't that what they called the willow wisp? Yeah, I've heard that and term people before. Would, people would try to chase them down and follow them into the woods and get lost, and then they would never be found again, or they would find their bodies. Well, like days I later. was gonna say, depending on which mythology you look into, also that can. That's one of the stories I've heard before, but you know, and then all the experience experiences that he's having at home. Yes. He, he so it just so happens that he's living in a haunted house. I, well, either that, or if that house was not like that previously, then something attached itself to yeah, him. Yeah. Something, something anchored itself and, and made its way to his house. So. Yeah, not not a good situation to be in, especially um, getting the elbows in the back and the push down the stairs, him and his wife both. And then, you know, him having to have that second shoulder surgery because of the fall he was taking down the stairs and he grabbed that handle. So Well, and now she's injured stuff. too. Right. Man, what a great time. I was so glad to have him on and he really is a good guy and I can't thank him enough for coming on the show and joining us. Definitely can't wait to hear further stories down the road. Yeah, we're definitely going to have to get him back on the podcast. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. Can't wait to have him come back on and tell us some more stories, especially if he's going out and doing some more investigations. So, again... Everybody, we want to thank you for listening and thank Eric for coming on the podcast. And we hope you have a great night. And hopefully you'll have some stories to tell with this Halloween season. Yes, it's going to be a very spooky Halloween this year. Yeah, don't eat too much candy. And watch out for Bigfoot. And remember, keep your eyes to the sky. You have been listening to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. You can reach us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at mi 
underscore UFO and join our Facebook group by searching for Michigan UFO sightings and paranormal encounters. So until next time.